So uh, joining me here at the Zendo tonight, I have uh, John, Mark in from San Diego for one last night, Keith and Steve and Jill and Joe. And joining us on uh, Zoom tonight, we have Mike and Cynthia and Radigan and Doug and Jeff. So much interest in closing out our study of the Lotus Sutra. <laughs> it's been uh, a long trek through it, I know, but uh, for me, it's been an enjoyable one. Uh, and advance warning, I know I'd indicated my initial plan was to get through both chapters 27 and 28 tonight. But I realized as I started uh, preparing my advanced notes for this that to do that would be just kind of skimming. And I don't like to do that as a rule, <laughs> especially if, if we're finishing up all this time we've put into the Lotus Sutra. Uh, these last two chapters actually are kind of calling out for an entire talk devoted to each one. So that's, that's my intention at that point, at this point. Uh, so we'll start in on chapter 27. And I do have some notes roughed up for chapter 28. So should I surprise myself? Uh, we'll, we'll get into 28, but I'm not expecting to surprise myself. Uh, so the title of this chapter is The Story of King Resplendent. And of course, that's what the Lotus Sutra is filled with, is all these stories, one after another after another. And as stories are typically uh, doing, they take liberties with reality. So once again, we need to keep that in mind. And one of my roles tonight will be to kind of pull those wild ass stories in and actually explain what what they shake out to in terms of dharma, in terms of practice. That practice isn't about uh, displaying miraculous powers like uh, the king's sons do in the course of this sutra. The way that they convince the king that he needs to study with the, with, with the Buddha, uh, because look what they can do. And of course, our, our immediate reaction should be, well, that's not why I entered the practice. I could acquire miraculous powers. At least I hope that wasn't the case for any of it. Because if it was, you probably would have been gone already. Because we don't have any of those here. Unless you take on uh, a more Buddhist view of miraculous powers and see most everything being a miraculous power. But we'll, we'll get into that a little more in just a, a few moments here. Uh, another nice aspect of this story is that we've grown accustomed in many of the stories of the Sutra, they, they, the father-son theme tends to be uh, predominant. 
And lo and behold, mom makes an appearance here. And in many respects, she can be seen almost as like the glue that keeps the family together. So, and at, at, that she ends up joining the family in terms of going off to study and practice Buddhism. So we've come some distance from earlier in the sutra when the way it was being portrayed, that would have been pretty uh, unthinkable. You know, mom would have to stay behind until she got reborn as a male, right? <laughs> but we're beyond that now. So there has been progress made in the course of this sutra because it was written at various points in time. So we are moving on in terms of the depth of the practice and the, the real understanding of what it entails. So this chapter is basically a history of this figure, King Resplendent, his queen, and his two sons, the princes. And both the queen and the princes enter this story as already being adherents of Buddha and the Buddha Dharma. And their interest is in getting the king to give up his preoccupation with other teachings and recognize the Buddha Dharma and its truth. So this is how the story unfolds. And the Buddha at this time is named Thunder Voice Constellation King of Wisdom. And the princes, now we get into the miraculous acts, the princes go before the king, leap into the air and walk about in the sky. Sounds like some of those uh, Taiwanese films, <laughs> you know, Crouching Dragon. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, it's easy having seen those to visualize this actually taking place. And maybe their martial arts capabilities were such that they actually did do this. I don't know. But, uh, and, and not only did they do that, which is pretty phenomenal, but then they shoot fire and water out of their hands and feet, along with other sorts of incredible things. And this, 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 the text tells us that it's the influence of the princes that brings uh, a whole group of people. Of course, the queen, who's already uh, a convert, but the king, ministers, court ladies, and, and many other people of the country to the Buddha to hear the Dharma. So the sons have had their desired effect. 
<clears throat> now, what was actually being portrayed here? And this is really important. <clears throat> it's about this notion of the embodiment of practice. So to get this point across, the Lotus Sutra, in the languages of its time, is putting it in terms of miraculous powers. But in the sense of Dharma and in the sense of the teaching of the Lotus Sutra, I think we're well advised for the, for the benefit of our own practice is to see this as being the impact of, of our understanding of Dharma, but to see that impact in a very realistic way, how we see it transforming ourselves in ways that others could understand. <clears throat> and that doesn't mean dancing in the air and shooting forth water, fire, and whatever else putting on a, a huge display. <clears throat> Quite the contrary, actually, I think. That what we, oh, I was hoping you were doing that. Thank you so much, much, much appreciated. The after effects of our wonderful. So it's, it's the way we embody the practice that is what brings others to the practice. Without that, the teaching doesn't really have any real meaning. It has to be transformative. And we can see that transformation, maybe, in a sense of almost a miraculous thing. I find it helpful sometimes to see it in just that way. But not in the sense of spectacle. You know, the, the Super Bowl halftime show, all these whiz bang, but much more down to earth, more Zen-like. How do we conduct ourselves? And that, trusting in that to carry out our bodhisattva vows. Because that's what we bring terms of our ability to help others, to lead them to study and hopefully practice the Dharma themselves. Whatever their particular Dharma might look like, it might look different than my Dharma. Maybe it would deepen them in their own particular religious tradition. Zen practice has been known to have that effect on people. They don't all need to become 
fully certified Buddhists. But that could also be seen hearkening back to the teaching of the Lotus Sutra of one vehicle. So the Bodhisattva vow of beings are numberless, I vow to save them, doesn't mean to bring them all under the Buddhist tent. It doesn't say anything about that. It kind of leaves it very open about what is it to save people? What is it to serve people? What is it to alleviate, be a force for alleviating suffering out there? It could actually take many shapes and forms. Hence the teaching of the Lotus Sutra of skillful means. It's definitely not teaching one way, one way or the hard way. It's teaching being present right here and now. Look at what's happening right here now. And respond to it wholeheartedly with your, your virtuous heart. And that's the practice. Wisdom virtue, compassion, and this is why this is a sutra about practice, not just about dharma, but dharma has to be put into action. As I think I've already pointed out, speaks to me of uh, Ellington's It Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing. And that swing is actually the way we practice. We just have the tunes, the Dharma rolling around in our brain. Don't mean a thing. It's true for Dharma. So we put the swing in our dharma by practicing it. Then other people start to, just like uh, a real swing ensemble, people respond. Might even get up and start dancing. Even stone women, (laughs) wooden men, (laughs) start singing and dancing. Amaze what happens. It won't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. That's right. <laughs> That's also a key teaching in the Lotus. <laughs> That's where Ellington got that from. <laughs> and he said the king's sons definitely swung. <laughs> So the king, once he begins studying with with the Buddha, uh, a constant refrain we're encountering in the Lotus Sutra, 
Of course, what does the Buddhist tell the king? He assures him he will be a, a, a fully enlightened Buddha at some point. So now the king is all in. So he signs over his kingdom to, I think it's his brother, leaves the palace and home to practice. So the whole family is now uh, disciples of this, of this Buddha. Thunder voice constellation, king of wisdom. So the then to come back to this uh, uh, fact that that towards the end of the sutra we now have a family uh, drama uh, being told for us. The story of the king, his wife, and their two sons. And uh, when the king sings his son's praises to the Buddha, because the king realizes it's because of the son's encouragement that he's he's there. They really have kind of carried out the Bodhisattva vows. They have saved their father. Uh, and the Buddha agrees with what the king's saying and further explains that anyone who plants roots of goodness will subsequently have good friends. So this, for me, is kind of painting a picture of what Sangha is. We come together and study, we plant roots of goodness, and we get to hang out with good friends. That's kind of a beautiful thing. It's a really beautiful thing. And just having been away for a week, not very long. <laughs> you know, I come back here, and I deeply appreciate it. Yeah, the good friends with the good hearts and the importance of it in my life. And I think that's the power of Sangha, the reason why it's one of the three jewels, a place one can take refuge. Those aren't just empty words. When they come to life, you deeply experience it. You feel its impact on you. And it, it does transform us. The act of coming together. And even those that are already together, like a family. What the 
the introduction of Dharma can mean to that group that is already existing with tight familial bonds. But it can become something much more. Everything can become something much more. And that's kind of what Dharma does. It takes everything. It takes it to a deeper place for us. It connects in a deeper way for us. So speaking out of Dharma lingo, you know, it's seeing our common nature. Seeing this wondrous shunyata running through all things. Which when I was in Milwaukee, I talked about because I gave my Zen jazz, the creative art of everyday living talk. And that's really what shunyata is. We talk about interdependence, but it's even more than that. It's creativity. Interdependence allows creativity. That's really the essence of it. And we all live in that world together as these intercreative beings. And as Duke Ellington would probably say if he was here, and that's a really beautiful scene to be in. And he'd be right, it is. So the Lotus Sutra can be seen as emphasizing the importance of life in the world being dedicated to the work of the Buddha. And that's not the work of some, any one individual. That's the, the trouble that happens sometimes when we use the Buddha term. It can become about as problematic as the God term. We have to always remember Buddha means awakened one. So it's, it's the work of awakening. That's the importance of life in the world, being dedicated to the work of awakening. That's the work of the Buddha, of all the Buddhas in the world, work of awakening, awakening to this world. Or as Sam Cook and Louis Armstrong, Put it, what a wonderful world. That's part of awakening. And an appreciation 
for those who have preceded us, whether it's more recently in time or even going back centuries or millennia, laying foundations for our lives here now. So this is why Buddhism, when it comes to China, found fertile ground, not only in Taoism, but also in Confucianism, the sense of tradition, our ancestors. And that becomes part of our practice. It's to recognize how we benefit from that foundation that's been laid for us, for us. And how we, in terms of how we conduct ourselves, are laying similar foundations for the future. So, Uji Dogen, being time. Our activity right here and now flows from the past, flows on to the future. And to have that broad understanding of this existence right now, it's not just here and now, which is the way our society, unfortunately, tends to treat us and the way we become conditioned to react to things. Everything's here, right in this moment. It should come as no surprise how transformative it can be if we take the viewpoint of Uji, the viewpoint being laid out here, that actually it encompasses all of time. What brought us here, what we're going to send forward. Nothing's excluded. That might slightly shift how we respond <laughs> to all the things that are dangling out. It just might adjust it a notch. It may cause cause us to loosen up a bit with some selfish interests for the good of the whole, which could be described as doing the work of the Buddha doing the work of the awake because of what the way the awakened entails entails seeing everything having that much deeper more profound view of your very life So this is where the real teaching of the Dharma plays out. 
is in our embodiment of the practice. So all the Dharma teachings in the more traditional sense of that term are directed towards that. So we have to fully ingest them and let them work their transformative activity within us to then go forth and practice, live our lives, interacting with others, and spreading the Dharma, not in the sense of hand, handing out pamphlets, getting on soapboxes, but just in the way, the nature of our interactions. And there's an example of, uh, of one of the important practices, uh, an example of, of uh, the first of the six paramitas, generosity, when uh, the king and the queen give their extremely valuable necklaces to the Buddha as a sign of their devotion. And the necklaces are then transformed into a jeweled platform with a seat for the Buddha from which he emits light. The light to bring clarity for others. To show them the way. So generosity also goes forward. Their gift to the Buddha becomes part of his embodied practice. He doesn't have a storage chest, kind of Trump-like, where he stores all the gifts that should have been the property of the government. But no, these are mine. <laughs> all mine. Generosity is just this flow of Dharma. It doesn't stick to anybody. Hopefully. Because that's it's it's true power is to have it go forth for the benefit of all beings. Every act of generosity. So when I was in Evanston last uh, Friday, it was, went out to lunch that day with Trisha to a restaurant. In, this was in Chicago, but not far from the Evanston line. And she was talking about <clears throat> refugees that were being sent up to Chicago by you know, Texas, Florida, 
and uh, they were being inundated and there were police stations that were kind of providing shelter to them. So there were the police station near where we had had lunch she's been in the habit of, of going up there and donating money there. So we, we proceeded to drive by there with that intent. Uh, but that, as I recall, I think it was a, a super hot day that day. And uh, there were only a couple of people outside. And we talked and she was concerned. Well, she gave it to just a group of two or three people. It's not going to go any further than that. And that wasn't really what she wanted to do. And so <clears throat> ultimately, the decision was made, not this time. But this is you know, generosity. I mean, this is my, my Dharma sister, Trisha. This, this is who she is. And how she practices is something like this is going on in her backyard. And she is regularly swinging by there to, to do something. So powerful teaching, powerful teacher. So good friends or teachers do the work of the Buddha, the work of the awakened. And it's important to have good friends. Good friends, of course, are always our teachers. It's part of being a good friend. And we all need good friends and teachers. Okay. Well, I think Stop there. Go ahead. Okay. Questions, thoughts to share? Doug. Welcome back. Dan. It's good to see you. And I hope you had a good trip. It sounds like you did. Very good. When I first read your email where you were talking about your trip you were going to take, you referred to, and you did, did it again, to your friend, your Dharma sister, Trisha. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that means. I, my first thought that comes to mind is, well, Am I Dean's Dharma brother? 
but maybe it means something, something else. And I, I don't really know what it means, but it sounds like it's separate from just, you know, somebody else in a sangha or whatever. I just don't know. Well, what it's mean? one of those things that can have uh, a, several different types of meaning. Uh, I mean, in its broadest sense, you know, we all are, right? We're all brothers and sisters and all beings. But uh, in, when I use that term in, in relation to, to Tricia, I guess I have a more particular uh, sense of it with her because we were both co-ordained as priests in the same ceremony. We had the same teacher at the time, Diane Martin, at Udambara Zen Center. So we were kind of twins. <laughs> I'm her twin brother. And we, we kind of feel that way about each other. Well, that's not That was 20 years ago. So it has a little more significance than it for you. And I just the language, I guess, is what kind of made me step back and say, well, I don't quite understand this, but precisely, yeah, that we would all be Dharma's sisters and brothers. Um, That's true. Um, but anyway, I mean, it's it's a small point. I it's just something that I question when you read it. Maybe I'll also question other things <laughs> along. Yeah. The well, good, yes, because that allowed me to elaborate a bit more on the connection I have with Tricia. Yeah. Well, thanks. I appreciate that. It's yeah. nice that you have that connection. I mean, I, I don't have the connection with the, the Sangha that you do or a lot of the other people. I just haven't built those relationships. But I have yeah. a group of friends in Oberlin that are my folk music friends. Yeah. And I genuinely treasure their being allowed to. They've invited me into their group. Mm -hmm. and I really love folk music. And I, I just it's so filled my life. I mean, as you said that about you know, our sangha, I, I thought, well, I, I don't have that relationship, but I do know. I think I can understand it at the level of these people who've just added so much to my life. And I want to give back. I mean, that's what comes up to me. I want to somehow, um, this is not Dharma, but I, I ran my Cora over to this musician last week as she was coming through town. And I was just full of joy that I could introduce her to this instrument, this West African instrument. And I was kind of looking, observing myself at the time and saying, so, I mean, I made a special trip over it and she, we just had to meet at the right time. And there she was. And, you know, it was just a perfect moment of sharing. Yeah. But that, I don't know, there's, it just seems to me that maybe that's when you love something, when you're passionate about something. Mm -hmm. um, I, maybe someday I'll be as passionate about the Dharma. I don't think I am at this point. Okay. I'm committed at some level to practice it, but in any event, I'm, I'm really digressing here, but um those moments are are just really for me just uh full of joy and, and happiness and gladness so i'm glad you got to meet your your dharma sister somebody who you're so close to and my teacher too so <laughs> two people that are very you know near and dear to my heart in this practice And as, as usually the case when you travel, meet some new people too, including uh, Rayron, the resident teacher of Milwaukee Zen Center. I've never met her before. 
and then the cities of Milwaukee and Cleveland have a lot in common, you know, cut from the same cloth, you might say. So had had some real quality time with her. Hope hope to be have in interacting with her more in the future. And who knows, maybe that'll even include uh, uh, a trip by her at some point to Cleveland. Obviously, it hasn't even been talked about yet, but I, I, I know I'll be back in Milwaukee. And they love jazz and zen there <laughs> so so I, i'm popular there for for at least a time being <laughs> mike well, just to reinforce some of what Doug was talking about um, and, and what you were pointing to in terms of Sangha, um, it just made me think about as sort of the, the Mansfield group that, you know, I, you, you were leading for a while and, you know, it really did become my, uh, my uh, family or family adjacent. And as that kind of dissipated, I, I really felt kind of, you know, floating or or you know displaced uh like out in space or something but i just want to say you know reconnecting with this group uh everybody here has been so welcoming so it definitely feels like i've come back home to the home <laughs> that i've had so i'm very grateful for uh you and and the entire group there so thanks mike it's very great to have you with us no question. John. Just, just a side note to some of what you said. It, I don't know that this ever struck me before, and I've not heard your Zen and jazz talk. I've always been out of town or someplace yeah. else. I think but, that's the case for most people. <laughs> so we're going to remedy that. Actually, we have a Zazen guy coming up in uh, in nine days. Great. If you're going to be here, <laughs> you, you will hear it. Um, what struck me is that creativity really grows out of the same intimacy that we practice in mindfulness or shikantaza. Yeah. That's really the source of when you're truly intimate with something, you see things other people don't see. Right, right. And, and this is what will come out in the Zen Jazz talk. The, what enables that to happen is the dropping off of self. self. That happens in Zen and in Jazz. Mm -hmm. And I was just watching uh, a Criterion Channel wonderful interview on method acting. And I realized 
And it was Ethan Hawke and Vincent D'Onofrio were the two actors being interviewed. And what they were talking about was the exact same thing. Hmm. Allowing their creativity. So all of a sudden I'm realizing, well, actually what I've been talking about with jazz musicians, that style of acting to just be able to empty themselves. And be alive in this moment. That was powerful experience for me, watching that, to recognize that, oh my God, this is, uh, so I'm gonna be watching a lot of films now that uh, uh, in many instances for the second or third time. And in fact, one of the clips they had uh, was from uh, The Heat of the Night. The name of the actress who was in that, who played the, the widow, the guy that was married, though, she was, she played a prominent part, but Rod Steiger, who really is just, he, <laughs> and Sidney Poitier was also uh, part of that group. In fact, the three of them were pretty, had a pretty close relationship. Uh, but the the actress, and her name will come to me, I, I think. But she made it clear because they wanted to just start associating on the set like friends. She said, no, no, we can't go that way. <laughs> this is part of the approach. You know, we need to empty all that out so we can more fully play these roles. Yeah, and they showed this one scene with Rod and Sydney, and it was... Rod just all over the place, and uh, and they said Sydney was commenting afterwards that Rod was just acting circles around me. <laughs> he was in the zone, you might say. It's like Sonny Rollins on one of his solos. <laughs> so really, you know, they allowed me to connect, make that connection. Oh, I got it. <laughs> so the wondrous things that can happen from dropping off of self. Okay, maybe we're ready to chant out there. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. I vow to myself and to each of you to commit myself daily to the healing of our world and the welfare of all beings to live on earth more lightly and less violently in the food, products, and the energy I consume to draw strength and guidance from the living earth, the ancestors, the future generations, and my brothers and sisters of all species to support others in our work for the world and to ask for help when I need it 
to pursue a daily practice that clarifies my mind, strengthens my heart, and supports me in observing these vows. We grant. <laughs> I told you it would come to me. <laughs> Dean, I was surprised uh, you didn't find a way to tie in uh, gravitational waves, especially once you brought up Uji. I was like, I was waiting for it. Oh, <laughs> next week. <laughs> <laughs>